Hi, I'm Danielle Fetter. I'm Alexandra Lee, and we're the co-hosts of Partial View Podcast. Hello. Hi there. We're back with episode two of Partial View Podcast. Two? Yes, two. We're slowly figuring things out. We are here today with Kate Morheny, who is a director, producer, and dramaturg currently working as the artistic associate in the literary department at Long Wharf Theatre, the artistic producer at Noor Theatre, and she's a founding steering committee member for the Middle Eastern and North African Theatre Makers Alliance, or MINATMA. She has directed and or develop new work with the Soho Rep Writer Director Lab, the Civilians R&D Group, New York Theatre Workshop, The Amoralists, The Flea, The Shakespeare Society, The 24-Hour Plays, Nationals, and other New York City companies. She is assistant or associate directed with Ibex Theatricals, The New Vic, McCarter Theatre, Clubbed Thumb, Yale Institute for Music Theatre, and The 24-Hour Plays on Broadway. So, you know, just like a small resume... Just like a couple indie things. And we're going to be talking today about the relationship between regional theaters and New York City theater and sort of the exchange of plays and artists and ideas that happens or maybe sometimes doesn't happen all that efficiently between them. And so, Kate, welcome. Thank you for having me. I'm honored and excited to chat. We're also going to try something new, as if this entire thing isn't new, where we just start off the conversation, not necessarily talking about the topic, but more about just like, have you seen a show recently that you really loved? Is there some other form of media you're really loving and want to shout out? or like some random thing that you just like kind of can't stop thinking about that's just you're just like a little obsessed with and entertained by either one of you want to start I'll start sure um so there's a, a TV show right now that's on its second season it's called Los Spookies and it is it's uh, co-written uh, Fred Armisen is one of the writers and some other folks um it started before the like right before the pandemic. It had its first season and then stopped for a bit, and then they just released the second season, which I'm so delighted about. And it's this bizarre, wonderful mix of genres. It's basically about a group of friends who are obsessed with like horror, like horror movies and like scary things, and they make it their mission to like create scary experiences for people. So this sounds like it would be scary, right? But no, it's hilarious. It's like this mix of bizarre, um, like magical realism and just hilarious situations. Um, and it's really, I think it's its like not like anything else that I've seen on television. I think it's part of why I like it so much is that there's something very theatrical and um, sort of genre bending about it. So it's really awesome. Highly recommend it. This is the second time I've heard this come up. They actually... Two of the writers just went on the podcast Los Culturistas mm. and talked about this, and it sounds so good. And the fact that it's now... I've heard really good things. That it's now yeah. coming up yet again is like, clearly, I need to watch this. 
it's really cool. It's also almost entirely in Spanish, which is very, I, I don't speak Spanish, but that's very cool. And, you know, I watch it with subtitles and um, that's another element that's really cool. But the writing is so good. The, the acting is so good. Like all around 10 out of 10 would definitely recommend this show. Amazing. Moving to the top of my list. Mine, I would say, is just a general shout out. This is going to be the first of many shout outs I make to Broadway Beat, which is a satire, theater news satire platform. They are hysterical. They are constantly nailing it. The speed that they churn these things out at while still being insanely funny and also it's not just funny like silly funny which would be fine but they really nail the satire part of it too and are saying things about the industry and I just think they're brilliant it's so good I really just don't understand how they are so quick it it blows my mind it really does it's so good I have to check this out oh they're so funny Kate I'm low-key obsessed with the cast recording of Venice, which was off-Broadway, like, I don't know, eight years ago, and came out on my Spotify years ago. And then really recently, I just, like, got back into it in a way that, like, I really wasn't at the time. Hmm. And I didn't see this show. I know nothing about this, the plot of this show, except that it's apparently kind of based on Othello. It's just so good. It's it's like a Broadway pop score that's also a little R&B and hip hop. It frankly is just an incredible, like, I'd say hour of music. So I'm really, really into that right now. Do you know who wrote it? Matt Sachs and Eric Rosen. Cool. Yeah. Willow is a great song, but also Sunrise. If you're going to listen to like two songs on the album, those are both great. So A plus. Awesome. I'll have to check that out, too. Cool. So now, just to jump into the topic, when Alex and I were sort of brain dumping about this subject and trying to plan out this episode, we realized that everything we were saying sort of went came back to this one sort of central observation, which is very much a generalization and it's definitely reductive but it's a starting point which is that it seems like where regional theaters used to be the place where new work went to have out-of-town tryouts before transferring to New York City whether it was Broadway or off-Broadway now they seem to more often be theaters where new work that has already been tried and tested in New York City goes next. Like, for example, the annual American Theater Magazine list came out really recently as of this recording that says Clyde's by Lynn Nottage is the most produced play this coming season with 11 productions at regional theaters across the country when it was just on Broadway this past season and and this is like a pattern that we observed sort of across the board Mm -hmm. yeah I ended up I literally randomly chose I think it was like six theaters in six major U.S. cities that are known for doing both new work and revivals and two of them were doing Clyde's 
a lot of them were doing multiple productions that had just been in theater er, in New York theater recently. And I I counted both revivals and newer plays. Um, Among that, I think one of them was doing Clyde's and Search for Intelligent Life in the Universe, which just had a run, I believe, at The Tank recently. And I think it's something that I've also noticed in like my career in regional theater. It's kind of a guessing game of, okay, that seems like it's going to go to regional theater. Which one in town is going to do it? Um, And I think that where I have kind of landed as we've been talking about, as we've been thinking about this topic is we see a lot of pipelines going between regional theaters and New York. And what are the factors that go into that those pipelines? Um, and so that's kind of, some, kind of something that we were hoping to really delve into with you because we thought you'd have some really good insight. Yeah, like, so Kate, is this something, like, do you sort of agree with this observation or how have you seen it play out? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I, I agree. I've seen the trend a lot that, that regional theaters are taking things that have premiered often in New York or on the coasts and, and, and sort of doing second productions. I think it depends very much, though, on the on the specific regional theater, right? So, like, I can I can only speak to the ones that I am involved with. So, like, for example, at Long Wharf, we we are very committed to new work, and much of what when you speak about the pipeline, our goal is really to be developing exciting new work, and you know, and then introducing it to the world. Also, classics, you know, like, also that's important too, of course. But we have. A, like a pretty robust and, and growing new play program. And I think that the, um, you know, the pandemic slowed down a little bit of that process and there became sort of a, you know, projects that had already been lined up that were in the pipeline already. But I think that the goal is to develop brand new work and then bring it to production in hopes that then that will also get done at other theaters. And I think a lot of some other theaters that that I know of, regional theaters, are have a similar mission, and it's about balancing like what are the the sort of exciting new work that's being developed, and then like what are the tried and true things that get balanced with that, and also what are the shows? I, I think a lot of theaters have um, a desire to do world premieres, which is great, and we certainly have that. But also, I think sometimes it's about thinking about like not only not only doing world premieres but what are plays that would be exciting for the local like the local region mm-hmm. for whatever reason or yeah. yeah so i think sometimes that like opens the door for things that perhaps had a production elsewhere but like haven't been seen in this particular community and like would speak to this community in an interesting way yeah like in in researching examples of this so i About 10 years ago, I worked at um, a theater in Philadelphia, so I was looking at a few theater companies in Philly out of curiosity because, first of all, like, while I lived there, I noticed this trend in a really exaggerated, extreme way. But then, like, to your point about local communities and certain things, like, really, even if it didn't premiere there, certain things will absolutely be a really natural programming fit for certain theaters because of the local community. And, like, sticking with the Philly example, like, the Walnut Street Theater is starting their current season with Rocky, the musical, which, like, 
it was a number of years ago that it was on Broadway at this point, but like, obviously they're doing Rocky in Philadelphia. That makes perfect sense. Um, Mm -hmm. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, that example makes me think of, for example, like we just did a concert reading of Jelly's Last Jam at Long Wharf Theater. And like, you know, that's a that's an an piece that's been around for a while, but I think has a special meaning in New Haven, which is a city with such a rich history of jazz. And so to do that show in New Haven, we had a we had big audiences because people were excited about this piece. We had like a community event at a library, you know, about a month before the show. And like that was totally sold out. Like you couldn't get a seat. There wasn't even room for standing room um, because it resonated in the community in a certain way. So I think like there are examples of, of pieces like that that just that makes sense, and I think there's there's merit to that too. To saying okay, like what are the what are the classics? Sometimes not even classics, but just plays. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. I mean, what I the point that I kind of wanted to make is that where a lot of these theaters were talking about, you know, they are like the midsize, the bigger the bigger dogs. They have you know bigger staffs, bigger budgets. Often that still means limited programming slots, but if say you have, you know, spots for six plays in your season to fully stage six plays or musicals and, you know, say two of them are, you know, things that got buzz in New York. I mean, you have to think about where you're where you're putting your resources. If a third of your season programming is going to be things that we heard were really good in New York, I don't know. You have to kind of think about your priorities in terms of are we prioritizing our community? Are we prioritizing what they what we feel they're going to put their money towards? Because that is unfortunately a big conversation mm-hmm. at these regional theaters. We live in capitalism, unfortunately. <laughs> we do. We do. And, you know, where where are the priorities for these theaters? It oftentimes, you know, they are really serving their their mission statements. But I don't know, maybe I'm just cynical, but I feel like sometimes catering to having people get excited about something just because they read it was good in the New York Times is not always the best way to think about making money for your theater mm-hmm. or the smartest yeah, way. Yeah, I think it could potentially, it affects audience expectations moving forward. Mm-hmm. Going back to the mission statements, it's that's another thing. Like, obviously, of course, there are theaters that their mission sort of says nothing about new work or theaters where they are trying to strike more of a balance. And... Then that brings in the question of the resources and where you're putting them, because there's many regional theaters and theaters in New York. It's like they'll have their main stage season, but then they're doing plenty of new work development behind the scenes, doing readings and workshops that aren't public. But it's, it's so interesting when you look at the theaters that seem to sort of be plucking plays out of New York, but who claim to be dedicated to supporting new writers and new work I get I get a little sus when the only way that support bears out is in closed private readings and not actual productions yeah and I I just I have to say I agree because I 
I'm thinking of, you know, major theaters in my area that have made like a commitment to the creation of new work by local writers. And I can't, I can think of like a handful where those writers have actually gotten to the big main stages. Mm-hmm. But it really seems like the development of nurturing local playwrights is just not, it's, it's, it's a little bit lip servicey. It can be. It can be, depending on the theater. And it's really frustrating, I think, as somebody who really wants to see what people around me are thinking about and creating on stage. I live in a city where I feel like I don't get that a lot, unless I go to a smaller theater um, that is dedicated to that kind of work. And again, there, that's the difference between kind of the smaller companies, the mid-sized companies, and the bigger companies, I feel like, is the different priorities are at stake with their missions. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I don't know, personally, I feel like it's key for theaters to follow through on, like, if, if developing new work is part of the mission, that it feels key that they then follow through and actually bring things to production, you know? Mm-hmm. That it's not just about, okay, you know, we, we develop it and then it goes away, but it's about, you know, we develop yeah. it and then the goal of production. I think the challenge becomes timeline because there are only so many slots in a given year. But like, you know, we, at least at Long Wharf, with the pieces we're developing and that we've commissioned, it's like, no, the goal is, you know, we're not going to just develop this and then be like, bye, you know. Right. <laughs> yeah, and that's awesome. <laughs> like, that's really great. The example I'm thinking of in my own geographic area is Arena Stage in D.C. has the Power Plays program that they've had going on for at least 10 years now to develop a certain number of new works surrounding like contemporary themes. And I think a couple of those are by D.C. area playwrights or maybe one or like maybe one or two. But it's. I don't it's frustrating it's frustrating to see a lot of resources poured into that and especially I hate to keep talking about money but the fact that a lot of regional theaters get local localized funding and localized grants too I think it needs to be a question of where we're what we're doing with that money to tell the story of a certain area as well. And I think I mean I think this really brings us to the bigger question of what a regional theater's kind of responsibility is. Hmm. And yeah, and we had a whole conversation yesterday, Alex, about the word responsibility in this bullet point where like, I got really stuck on that because we've already talked about responsibility in the sense of a theater company's responsibility to fulfill its mission. That's Mm -hmm. one thing. And potentially its responsibility to its local community which often ties into what their mission is. But what about their responsibility to the art form as Hmm. members of a national theater community? What is the benefit of pulling things from New York versus developing local work or even not necessarily local work, just new work? I was thinking I I sort of zoomed out and was thinking about it in terms of like the whole art form. Hmm. Yeah, which is like, Kind of haughty, but I agree with it. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. I never said this podcast wasn't going to be pretentious. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I guess my take on it is, is like, 
yeah, regional theaters do do have a responsibility to contribute to, I think, the pipeline you're, you're talking about of great new work. I think also there's, like, I think sort of a joint responsibility in, like, um, serving the local community and the national community in terms of, like, the furthering of the American theater. Thinking a lot about Long Wharf is in the midst of a transition. Do you both know mm-hmm. a little bit about this? Yeah, so that we're yeah. moving out of our physical space and embarking on this itinerant model and like going into the city of New Haven and partnering with local organizations and having those be our spaces and our venues instead of being in our old space, which was a little bit, you know, further away from not far from the city, but just like sort of next to the highway um, on the outskirts. And so I I feel like there's in that a sense of returning to like the responsibility to serve the local community and to serve to serve the Mm -hmm. city. But then I think implied in that is like, yeah, I guess a larger thing about if that's a responsibility on a local level, then how do we do that on a more national level, too? I don't have an answer to that question, but... Danielle and I were also pushing around the idea of, like, well, then, you know, you develop a show, you mount a show, it goes to Broadway, your theater gets mentioned a lot more, you know, donors might be more compelled to give now that they've seen something go to Broadway. That's like, it's like a proof of concept thing. And so then it's the question of, like, does every theater want that? Hmm. I mean, I think I think that if they say no, they're kind of lying a little bit. I think that's kind of a dream for a lot of people who who work maybe on the, like the artistic admin side of these theaters. But is it always necessarily the goal for the playwright? Probably not. Probably, Probably not. not. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think anybody, even if that is like secretly or not so secretly everyone's pipe dream... I don't think anyone would try to make the claim that, like, that would apply equally to any piece that they do. Yeah. No, 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 absolutely. Again, another oversimplification of the situation, I should have said. The the question of premieres and, like, sort Mm -hmm. of being the one just do the proof of concept, essentially, Mm -hmm. is so interesting. There's often... Or I've seen it be almost, whether it's world premiere or like, they'll often try to shoehorn in any version of any level of premiere this might be. Mm-hmm. Is it a world premiere? Is it a an Illinois premiere? Is it mm-hmm. um, regional premiere? Um, county premiere. I mean, I don't think we've gone as as niche as county, but who knows? I, oh, do, oh, you think? Really? You think? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's like there's this fight almost, this like desperation, this grabbing for the ability to say something is any kind of premiere, and I know that. I don't know how active this model still is or if they're still doing it really, but the National New Play Network was doing the Rolling World mm-hmm. premieres for quite a while, mm-hmm. which was allowing, for those that don't know, was allowing um, multiple theaters across the country to partner 
on premiering a play so that it would be a shared cost among the theaters um, and the same production or at least elements of that same production would travel between all of those venues. So it would be like it would do two weeks at or a month or whatever at Trinity Rep and then maybe and then somewhere in D.C. and then maybe some St. Louis and then maybe not every actor can stay with it the whole time. Maybe some of these theaters then bring in local actors from their community, but it's uh, it's a shared endeavor. And I thought that was awesome. And like, I wish yeah. that happened more. I think that they, looking at their website, I do, I don't know for a fact, but I think that they have stopped putting the resources into having multiple short runs of new plays um, doing Rolling World premieres. And now they have one that apparently spanned, um, it started before the pandemic. And according to the website, is still supposed to be rolling into 2023, hmm. um, but has had many productions, including streaming during the pandemic. Alabaster by Audrey Seppley. So cool. that is cool. I would love to know. I would love to know if that is something that um, National New Play Network is planning to continue because um, I was I was assistant dramaturg for a. Um, a Rolling World premiere as part of my apprenticeship and I thought it was just like a really fascinating concept in terms of uh, the development of the show. Mm. Yeah and I feel like it's th- that sort of collective that shared producing or like that sort of collective I think feels like a natural segue into the artistic caucus you're part of Kate because I think it's just like the coolest idea. I love it. Yeah, so basically, I could talk a, a little bit about it for those who might not know. So basically, um, it's uh, a group of, of theaters, uh, Long Wharf Theater, Baltimore Center Stage, William Mammoth Theater, and Repertory Theater of St. Louis uh, sort of came together and decided they wanted to create a joint program to disrupt some of the sort of gatekeeping structures and traditional literary offices and to also eliminate some of the or disrupt the way in which uh, artistic and literary offices feel a little bit siloed in the in the industry, the ways in which it's like, oh, you know, we, we need to get this world premiere first. We need to get it. It's like that's a ridiculous mentality when really multiple theaters could just do a co-production uh share share resources like yeah. you know everyone everyone benefits and then the playwright has had their play seen in several different cities so the artistic caucus was was created to disrupt some of that and it's starting its second year now um and there's going to be two different sort of components of it there's going to be a think tank which is like a group of folks mostly freelance artists who sort of consult with the the different theaters push back against their current processes share ideas share uh, artists and pieces they're excited about and then they're going to be script readers who um, help to read and, and and scout for exciting new work and what's i think it's what's exciting is the idea that these people and conversations and yeah information is shared that it isn't like oh everybody has their own you know little secret pile of scripts like what a what a silly way of doing things (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I think in general we try like even aside from the artistic caucus 
we try to operate with that, like not from a scarcity mindset, but from an abundance mindset of like, oh, we, we read a script that was really awesome and we're going to share it with this other theater we know that might be, you know, might be a good fit for them. Like we, we can't produce it this season, but hey, this seems like it would, you might be really interested. Want to check it out? Or like, you know, we're interested in this play. Like, what about you? Are you interested? <laughs> you know, so that it's not That's about so competition awesome. and it's more about like, <laughs> oh, how can we, how can we work together um, on this? Yeah, I am all about pushing back against that scarcity mindset, which I feel like mm-hmm. is just inherent to capitalism, but mm-hmm. is doesn't serve us in theater. No, it does not. Well, and also, I like how it's disrupting the model of the literary work that's going on behind the scenes, because for so long, literary managers have been labeled gatekeepers mm-hmm. by playwrights, directors, dramaturgs, even. And they... they this completely destroys that vision of of how a literary staff member is functioning. I think that while we've been talking about this, my where I've kind of landed on the subject of theaters picking things for their season is that like we just need to widen the pool mm-hmm. in whatever way possible. Yeah, you know, people have all these different resources. They have their personal connections they have new play exchange they have you know local networks they have playwrights that they know but we all just need to be looking at different ways to be plucking these projects and finding out which ones work best for us it feels like a think tank is truly the way to do that like i feel like we should all industry-wide like nationally because i think part of the problem with you know, traditional literary offices is there's like most, I would say the majority of theaters either require that the person submitting has an agent or they'll only accept submissions directly from agents Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. rather than it's, it's the exception when a theater has a fully open submissions policy and that's really just, I think, because of resources. Like, these literary offices yeah. aren't staffed enough at mm-hmm. all to get through that volume of plays. And so I think the Artistic Caucus model seems like it's really distributing or, like, diffusing that workload across yeah. a lot more people. Like, both the sourcing of it and the reading of it. And it's... It's amazing. Can more theaters do that, please? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. I mean, it also, I feel like the people involved also are able to broaden their horizons a bit because even if you came from a certain theatrical background, say, and you end up at Long Wharf, well, now you're in a caucus with Woolly Mammoth. Very different kind of institution. And so you're learning to read for different institutions, which I think is really valuable and something that I wish I had learned how to do earlier on in my in my literary career. Yeah, I think that that's one of the exciting things and one of the challenges, the idea of like a group of people all reading from multiple institutions. And it's exciting, you know, knowing that each of the theaters are looking for slightly different things, but that there are also, you know, big overlaps and certainly overlaps in like in values. Yeah, I think the other thing is that it's still an experiment. Like we we did it last season. 
And my, you know, I, I will say that, like, I wasn't my colleague, Cheyenne Barboza, who's my, my better half, artistic associate <laughs> community, was very involved in creating it last season. So, you know, I, I give, you know, credit to her for creating it. And, and it's it's very much like we're still, you know, we're iterating on it. We're, we're like seeing what works. We're building on it. You know, it's an evolving, it's an evolving thing. So, but yeah, I think it'd be awesome if, um, if it became a larger thing, if more theaters jumped on board too, or, you know, I think it's exciting to think about what the possibilities could be. Or maybe just having more theaters crosstalk in general. Yeah, maybe that's all it is. It's just about like yeah. getting rid of these artificial boundaries that exist. Rather than hoarding information and performers and and ideas for yourself, you know, being able to share and celebrate the fact that we are in a theatrical community. Many of us are in many theatrical communities. I also know that there is a, I believe it's like a something like a coalition of suburban theaters. Hmm is forming i believe maybe just on the east coast of um smaller theaters that are outside larger metropolitan areas and so you know kind of finding your community and finding out where you can talk about your various challenges is you know maybe maybe a more valuable cog in the machine than than we've than we've thought about before because it's not just that different departments within a single theater institution feel siloed from each other. I think different regions across the country Mm -hmm. feel siloed from each other, different institutions within the same city. It is, it's like, this is the dumbest analogy ever, but literally like I'm thinking of SpongeBob and the Krabby Patty secret (laughs) recipe. It's like, Mm -hmm. there's, (laughs) yeah, like why wouldn't you want to help support a playwright in any way you can, even if their work isn't right for your theater, but you like the play, it doesn't hurt you as an institution at all to either pass it along to a colleague at another theater or to just like let the playwright know like, and I've done this when working in a literary office is say, hey, this Mm -hmm. doesn't quite, we're not able to move forward with this, but I personally think it would be a great fit for X theater and like mm-hmm. I would recommend looking into submitting there that that harms no one yeah it takes nothing away yeah. from anyone yeah I also think it's really funny just because it's on my mind I just read Not Since Carrie by Ken Mandelbaum and he talks about the old-fashioned tryout phase of these pre-Broadway plays and they would like go to Philadelphia and get great reviews and then go to DC and have lukewarm reviews and then go to Boston and have terrible reviews. And the idea that they are like equally measuring all of those audiences against each other is mind boggling to me. The idea that America was so homogenous at that time that you could, or like that's kind of like the idea they had that, you know, you could really weigh both of Boston versus Philadelphia is crazy to me. I love this idea of collaboration for the sake of the art form in, I think, a way that is more productive. And isn't mm-hmm. that supposedly what the art form is? The entire thing is collaboration. Yes, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's also true. true. <laughs> yes, to that's, that. feels like the point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. 
Well, we solved, we solved it. it. I think we solved, <laughs> we solved. We solved the American theater. Um, I think we can end this podcast. Wow. It's been a good two Only episodes. Just two episodes. <laughs> Crushed it. Yes. I feel like we've had a really, really great discussion. Yeah, like, this was great. Blew through that. Yeah. One thing I didn't get a chance to mention is in terms of serving the community, I know, and I'm interested to know if you've seen this, Kate, mm-hmm. but there is a hot topic in DC theater about um, hiring actors from New York versus hiring locally. Mm-hmm. And if theaters who are who tout themselves as, you know, major regional theaters and, you know, get funding from DC and things like that, should they have a prerogative to be focusing on hiring DC area actors or is it okay to just hire entire casts out of New York? There's a lot of emotions around this topic for performers, I will say. Yeah, I mean, I feel like folks should hire local as much as they as much as they possibly can. I think it's the responsibility of of a lot of theaters to like not only cast locally but like try to cultivate talent locally too. I can think of examples of, of, uh, I think, is it Cleveland Public Theater has this, uh, like they've established a, a theater that does work only in Arabic and like they've engaged folks from the community in, to become part of that group who've like become part of their, the, the Cleveland Public community the way that I understand it. So I think there are models of that, but it's, it's challenging. It is challenging, and I kind of wonder if, um, not to put anything on your plate, <laughs> yeah. but I do wonder if an artistic caucus such as the one you are a part of, or another group down the line, could be do something similarly in terms of casting yeah, maybe. that you are doing and breaking down the, tra- the traditional kind of pathways. Yeah. And maybe there's a way to have theaters collaborating um, a little bit more to find that talent and, and cultivate that talent and nourish that talent across different institutions. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that idea. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is definitely complication with equity contracts, but yes. it's, it's so interesting because if you're doing, if you're an equity house and so you're doing a production on an equity contract without, like, it seems... I guess it does exist, but it seems strange to me that there would be an equity house in a community that has, like, no equity actors. I mean, maybe this will change, actually, because now anyone can join equity. Yeah. That's a whole, yeah, mm-hmm. and, yeah. That'll yeah. be a whole other episode. I can't wait to do research yeah. for that Ooh, one. I'm interested to listen to that one, Yeah. As long as we're talking about the New York and regional pipeline, there's there's such validity to both things, right? Like, should I go see? We were talking about Ain't No Mo at Woolly Mammoth, but should I go see Ain't No Mo here in D.C.? It's a limited run, but I could go. I got if I can like get my ass there, I can do it. Or I could wait and see it when it comes to Broadway. I think that both are valid. They're totally different productions. They're not the same production, but 
the idea of seeing it by one of my favorite theater companies that I think always does great new work, you know, I think I ultimately, maybe me as a theater goer, I'm just like, I would rather give them my money Mm -hmm. than give some Broadway producers my money. And maybe that's where I'm going to land on that. Yeah, I think, I don't think we're putting any sort of value judgment on whether something is out of town and then into New York or vice versa. But yeah, it's like it becomes a question of what's the intention and like motivation behind it. And are you serving your audiences and your community and your mission? Or are you just sort of reacting to New York Times reviews? Mm-hmm. And there's totally also, even in New York, I feel like it's a parallel, like an analogy to what you just said, where there's also so much pride in like, I saw Hamilton at the public, you know, like <laughs> I saw, I drag me, Danielle. Listen, I saw Hamilton at the public too, Alex. It's fine. Oh, there's. Did you see it with a reflecting I pool? Did it. The reflecting pool had been cut. Um, but yeah, there's definitely, I can totally see that local pride as a parallel to like the, like the seeing something early in its earlier stages or in its more, it's often like a more intimate venue too. So it feels, Mm -hmm. I think audiences have a chance to have a more personal connection with the piece and potentially with the artists too, like especially if it's a theater that does hire local artists and it's like, you know, it's different, not quite community theater where you're like, I'm going to see my dentist in um, in The Music Man, but it's more like there's, in Philadelphia, there's a, you know, a group of big musical theater actors who get hired for like all the major productions in Philadelphia and like, within the theater community, they're called celebrities. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Because people know them. Like, they become a draw, actually. And so it's really interesting. And, like, I never actually thought about it that way in terms of, like, the hometown pride of it. Maybe that's just because I'm truly a New Yorker. So, like, my hometown pride is seeing Hamilton at the public, I guess. Uh, but yeah I would argue that there is that in New York for the off off Broadway scene Mm -hmm. too though like I've I've had I had an experience where I was on the subway and I saw this actor who I'd seen in like a bunch of off and off off Broadway shows and I like got I was starstruck like I got (laughs) anxious and like Probably nobody else. I mean, other people who see shows would know who this person was, but I was laughing at myself because like, this is not a famous guy. Like, he's just on the A train, <laughs> like, you know? But I had just my, like, admiration for this person's work and having, like, been in community with him was was something else, so. Do you have any just, like, final thoughts on the topic? I think that we really, like, talked a lot about what we set out to talk about. I think so. That's great. Yeah, and I'm thinking now a lot about the like the local pride issue too. Mm-hmm. I'm just thinking about to tie it back to, you know, we talked about how plays used to premiere out of town, hit different communities and then go to Broadway. I mean, over the past 100 years or so, we've become just like a much more interconnected country through technology. Mm -hmm. and transportation and things of that nature. And so I think that the idea of local pride 
has really strengthened because it used to be you had to go to New York to see something cool. You had to go to Boston. You had to go to Philly. That's not true anymore. Mm-hmm. You can have those things where you live. And so I think that that is part of the reason we have such a rich regional theater scene here in America now is because as we didn't need to turn to the major metropolitan areas, we said, oh, you know, we can do these cool things in our own backyard. And so now maybe we're almost overcomplicating it by asking what everyone's responsibility is to do that. Because in the end, it's just a play. Mm -hmm. I think it's more like we should try to... My, My takeaway, I think, is that it's less about which direction in the pipeline something is moving and more about sharing the resources and maybe no Mm. longer fighting over who gets to have a premiere Hmm. and just Mm -hmm. saying yeah there's there are entirely valid reasons to do a particular play in all of these places and with your local community it's and it's going to resonate differently in different places and if you find that valuable then do it and it doesn't have to be the season after it was in New York and vice versa like don't get so attached to the idea of new work that the general you you are developing at a regional house like don't be so attached to the idea that that's going to then end up in New York um yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah kate do you have anything you want to plug oh um plug oh yeah okay so we have two um upcoming events at long wharf october 14th and 15th we're doing a series of rituals as we leave our former space and venture out in into more into the city the events are called homecoming and they're curated by jenny coons who's an awesome artist. That's going to be really exciting. It's going to be a party, like an actual party will be part of it. I don't know if this will be out in time, so that makes me think plugs are oh. not necessarily... But then people can, people can read about the accounts online, I'm sure. Yes. Of how great it was. Let me plug one other yeah. thing then, which okay. is that... Uh, The weekend of October 22nd, 23rd, we're going to be doing a reading of a play called Flying Bird's Diary by a Mohegan playwright named Melissa Tantaquidgen Zobel. It's going to be directed by Madeline Sayet, and that is going to be really exciting. It's it's about a historical, a real person, Flying Bird, and about the preservation of the Mohegan language. So that is going to be really exciting i'm super excited for that that's amazing that's so cool the connecticut history nerd in me is like flipping out right now that sounds amazing (laughs) and if this episode comes out after those things have happened because we are not sure yet we will link to the pages or any information about them in the show notes for you all Sounds good. Thank you so much, Kate. This was really fun. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, this was awesome. All of Kate's socials will be in the show notes as well. So give her a follow on Instagram and keep an eye out for Kate directing because she does that too. Yeah. Amazing. Thanks. Bye. 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 Bye.
Any opinions expressed in this podcast are personal and do not reflect the views of our or our guests, employers, or clients. For more of our opinions and other theater-related content, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and pretty much everywhere else at Partial View Pod. You can also find and support us on Patreon. I'm on Twitter at Danielle underscore Fetter and on Instagram at Danielle.Fetter. Follow me there. And I tweet and post pictures of my theater programs and books at Alexandra D-L-E-Y. Till next time. Bye.